And may I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You know what a difference confidence makes. You know, if you watch as much sport as I do or listen to it, you'll know that there are some players who are known as confidence players. In other words, when their confidence is shot through and low, they just can't play. They just can't like, bat in cricket or score goals or whatever. Their confidence is shredded and they just can't do it. But when the confidence comes back, everything seems to flow. Yet how fragile confidence is as a quality. So fragile it can easily just evaporate um, and lead to another phrase, the confidence crisis. Crisis of confidence, very easy to happen. Now confidence makes all the difference in the Christian life as well. Our theme this morning is our Christian confidence. And we're rooted there in the second half of Hebrews that Mike just read in our series on this mighty letter to the Hebrews. Now let me show you, if you've got that text open, page one, uh, two, three, four. No, one, two, what is it? One, two, one, one, three, two, four. I knew it was some combination of that, those numbers. Thank you. One, three, two, four. Um, I want to show you why I'm taking Christian confidence as the theme, so you know I'm not having to sort of pluck that up on a whim. So have a look at Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 19, where the writer is just gathering up all the teaching of the previous chapters into one great God-given privilege, and he says, verse 19, Therefore, sisters and brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... So God has given believers in Jesus Christ grounds for unshakable confidence. But the people who first received this letter were in danger of rejecting the gift of confidence. Persecuted, they were, and tempted to return to the worship of the Jewish temple. They needed to hear the writer as he urges them. Look at verse 35 towards the end of the section. Verse 35, so do not throw away your confidence it will be richly rewarded. Our Christian confidence. The writer to the Hebrews helps us here to understand it. He insists then that we act on it. And then he urges us to hold on to it. So that's our outline this morning. Three vital statements we're going to make about understanding our confidence, then acting on it, then holding it. So first of all, we need to understand our Christian confidence. What's it based on? It's God's gift in Jesus Christ. That's what our confidence is based on, God's gift in Jesus Christ. You know, it is possible to feel confident for no good reason. Apparently, if you stand like this, you see athletes do it before a race. If you just stand like that for a few minutes, confidence just kind of builds within you, apparently. I haven't tried it, actually. Maybe I should. Because I know all about confidence with no reason. Whenever I speak French, that is a triumph of confidence over ability. There is nothing on which I can base my confidence in French, apart from, apart from flunking my way somehow through my GCSE exams all those years ago. I sort of speak with a combination of sort of Englishman abroad bluster, and it's pathetic. It's the confidence that is actually based on ignorance. Um, another name for that is the confidence of youth. I sometimes think of Ed Emma Raducanu in her first final um, those a few weeks ago. I, here's an interesting question. So she went into that final, she looked like she didn't sweat a nerve at all, no nerves whatsoever, total confidence. Will she be more or less confident when she goes into her 10th Grand Slam final? I hazard the guess that she will be less confident because she will know what's involved 
There's a certain confidence that flourishes with a bit of ignorance. And, uh, well, that's just part of life, isn't it? But Christian confidence is based on the most solid reasoning. Solid reasoning. Better than that, actually. It doesn't just rest on reasoning. It rests on the most dependable person. That is, on God the Father and upon all he has done through his Son, Jesus Christ, in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So, I'm going to read verses 19 to 21, which is what we're focusing on to start with. Verses 19 to 21. Therefore, sisters and brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, dot, 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 it will continue as we'll see in a minute. Right, those statements in that verse, they summarize basically the central five or six chapters of the letter to the Hebrews. And if you've heard the sermons over the last few weeks and months, you will be familiar with the images that the writer is using. The most holy place refers to the place in the Old Testament temple where, symbolically at least, God was said to dwell. Only the high priest of Israel was permitted to enter that room, that most holy place, only once a year. And as he went in, he would sprinkle the blood, the sacrificial blood of an animal slain to secure forgiveness for the people. Symbolically, at least, that priest entered into the most holy place in place of the people as their representative. And through that priest, they, as it were, had access to God. Symbolically. It was all one great big symbol. But in Jesus, it's real. So let me remind us of the big truths that we've met just over the last few weeks as we've studied Hebrews. Chapters 5 to 7 is all about Jesus, the perfect high priest, one with us in our suffering, who knows our lives from the inside, but now raised from the dead, he always lives to intercede for us. And then chapter 8, he has established a new covenant. What does that mean? It means that God has made an arrangement by which he will meet us, forgive us, transform us. And then chapter 9, Jesus has entered heaven itself as our representative, having cleansed us with his own blood. And then chapter 10, he has offered his own body as the perfect sacrifice the sacrifice that makes sacrifice no longer necessary. So powerful and so final and complete was it. So what has God done for us in Jesus? He has provided confidence to enter the most holy place, his very presence. And so how can we be confident? Well, actually, a better question would be to say, how can we not be confident, given that all this privilege depends on Jesus. So if we ask the question, what confidence has God given us that we can approach him, that we can come to him anytime? Well, verse 19, it focuses all these great themes and gives these answers. It says, we can enter because of Jesus' shed blood that has secured our forgiveness as a fact. We can enter on the basis of his broken and resurrected body, which has paved the way. We can enter on the basis of his priesthood that has secured our access. So the point is, what I want us to get, it's vital we get it, is that our Christian confidence has nothing to do with our own ability. 
It is a reality, no matter how confident we may or may not feel about it at any given time. It is God's gift in Jesus Christ. It is something that is real. It's something, are you happy with this language, something that is objective rather than something that is subjective, something that is real rather than something that is just an emotion within us. We'll explore that in a bit more in just a moment. By the way, those words there, look at verse 20 if you've got that open. The words, through the curtain. We have got access through the curtain. What's he talking about? Well, if you know the accounts of Jesus' death, you'll be aware of that curtain. You'll have read about it. Because as Jesus died, the curtain, that curtain was a massive great curtain in the temple, was, which, separ which separated the most holy place where symbolically the Lord dwelt from the rest of the temple where the people were. That curtain, remember what happened when Jesus died? It was ripped in two from top to bottom, like that. Ripped. And so the moment Jesus sheds his blood, sacrificing himself, God tears the curtain, saying to us, here's your confidence. Here's your confidence. You can enter. Come in. Now, I've known a lot of people, actually, whose faith has come to life when they grasp the meaning of that torn curtain. Suddenly they say, get it, of course. He opened the way. Confidence was lit within those people. I've seen it happen. And once the confidence is lit, then the joy is lit in them too. Now, so you just, just explore this thing about feeling confident. Because you might think, I do believe in Jesus, but I don't feel very confident to enter God's presence. Whether that's in prayer or in worship or in, um, uh, in, in, uh, in life in general, I don't feel confident. Maybe I feel guilty, I feel ignorant, or in some other way excluded. I don't have that confidence. So this is the point, is just so vital we understand. This confidence is not that he's talking about here. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, this confidence is not primarily a feeling. It is a fact. God has given us a bomb-proof basis for confidence to enter the most holy place. He has given us this confidence whether we feel it or not. So just imagine um, that you have been given an all-access pass, an access all areas pass to some place, I don't know, some event or some stately home or something, access all areas. That card giving you access, that is your confidence. You can enter anywhere in that place. You can go. That is your confidence. It, it wouldn't matter, actually, how shy you felt. You might think, oh, I can't go into the, can't go into the bedroom, or I can't go into, the, that, I can't go into the, that green room, or whatever it would be. But you can, because you have confidence to enter. There it is in your all areas pass. What a wasted opportunity it would be not to use your all areas pass. But come on, you could say, does the God of eternity, the God of purity, the God of glory, does he really want me piling into his presence in prayer all the time? Oughtn't we be at least a little bit sorry to bother him? Oh, I'm so, so terribly sorry to, to bother you. And, and um, Lord, I, I know, I know. No, I know I'm a scumbag. No, I know, I know, I know. I, I'm, 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 but I, I am here. And would, would you mind listening? That's often a little bit how we can feel. 
few years ago, well, in fact, when we lived up in Cumbria, we were given a season ticket to Muncaster Castle. I don't know if you visited Muncaster Castle on the west coast of Cumbria. It's beautiful. And we, so we used to go to Muncaster Castle, and we could go anywhere, access anywhere in the grounds. But the thing was, Lord Pennington uh, lived in the castle. And so we all, I honestly always felt a little bit awkward walking around. The, I thought, this is Lord Pennington's garden. Does he really want the hoi polloi in his place? Um, and uh, even if we've got this ticket, I felt a bit funny. Anyway, one day we were standing there looking out over the beautiful view from the back of the castle on the terrace, and you look over across the Scarfell Pike, um, all the, uh, right across into the Western Lake District. Beautiful. And we were standing there, um, and a very affable, pretty posh bloke came up. Do you like it here? He said. And we, we're like, well, uh, yes, we really do like it here a lot. He says, I'm so glad you like it. I'm so glad you've come to enjoy it. It was Lord Pennington. Well, I can tell you, I never felt awkward again. I loved it even more. I thought, he loves me being here. He wants to see me in his garden. Our God and Father has given all believers confidence to enter his presence through the blood of Christ. It's real, objective, it's a done deal. And the thing is, that the, the thing is it's only once we realize that it's a done deal and a fact that we actually start to gain the confidence within ourselves and the feelings of confidence then come because we know, yes, I do have confidence because Jesus has secured it. Our Christian confidence, do we understand it a bit better? It is God's gift from Jesus Christ. But we don't just sit back and bask in it. Here's our second thing as we move on in our passage. We must act on it. And uh, specifically, our Christian confidence, we need to strengthen our hold on it. We need to strengthen our hold on it. So verse 19 sets some powerful logic in motion. So it, it begins with, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, dot, 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 then what? Since we have confidence, then, well, what? Well, we're told in verse 22, Since we have this confidence, then, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Oh, and something else, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Oh, and something else as well, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You know, it's good to be preaching this passage at harvest because this, this is a lettuce patch. Look down carefully and you'll see why. Lettuce, lettuce, <laughs> lettuce, lettuce. The old ones are always the oldest. The point is our confidence needs to be acted upon. So let's take the three instructions we've got there in order. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Those images come from the ceremonies of the Old Testament and the Old Testament worship. But the realities, again, they're found in Jesus. Jesus' blood has cleansed us in God's sight. Jesus has shed his blood to pay for the wrongs those wrongs that are deeply ingrained on in our consciences that whenever we recall them slightly make the hairs on the back of our neck sort of feel a little bit hot. You think, oh, he died for those. Cleanse them. That's what his blood was shed for. And so we can enter without fear by his blood. Enter in prayer. Enter when in need. Enter in worship. Enter any time. And the thing is, we need to realize this. We honor him when we do. We do him no honor 
When we say, oh Lord, I, I couldn't possibly, no, no, you're too great for that, I couldn't possibly. No, we make him out to be a liar when we do that. Just imagine, like Lord Pennington comes up to us and he obviously is delighted that we enjoy his castle and walking around his grounds. What honour do we do to Lord Pennington if the next time we come we feel equally awkward? None. You know, when we get a, if we get a, a, an invitation to a party, I must confess, I used to get this. I think it's part of the sort of the imposter syndrome that apparently 70% of people suffer from, the sense of, oh, I don't really belong here. But when you get a party invitation or wedding invitation or whatever, you, you read it and you think, well, they don't really want me to come. <laughs> They're just inviting me because they feel they have to. Is that only me that feels like that? Maybe this is a therapy session for me. But they don't really want me to come. No, of course they want you to come, and they want you to feel utterly at home and to have a wonderful time and to drink their drinks that they put out and to eat their crisps and to have a lovely time and to eat their wedding cake and to have a wonderful day. We don't honour the, them when we say, oh, I think I'll just stay out of sight and I, I won't, eat, won't eat any of the food. But yet there's a deep-seated religious instinct to feel that perhaps God doesn't really want us close to him. But it's such an insult to the host. So often, come in prayer often. Come in prayer. Come in confession. Come in worship. Come in thanksgiving. Come together with others. Come in sorrow and in joy. In sickness and in health. For richer, for poorer, draw near with confidence. Because God has given it to you. Okay, that's the first way we act on it. Second way we act on it, hold fast to hope. Verse 23, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Now, careful readers of Hebrews, notice a shift here. The previous chapters have been looking back to all that God has done through Jesus. At this point, there's a little hinge that moves towards the future, the future hope that we have in Christ. And uh, the, uh, the, the sh the fu this future comes into sharper focus now for the rest of the letter. Hope, because of course hope is about the future, isn't it? We hope for things that are in the future. So God has, what is this great future event? Well, God has promised Jesus' future coming to bring salvation to all who are waiting for him. And the promise will not fail. But notice he says, hold unswervingly to the hope. Because there will be pressure to swerve away from the hope. So we must hold to it unswervingly. There will be moments when it doesn't appear that the hope is ever going to come to fruition. When opposing forces seem to win and claim the future for themselves, they won't win. And that's why we need to make sure our hope does not swerve, but stay on course. Hold fast to hope. Draw near to God, hold fast to hope. Third one, here's the third way we act on this confidence. It is to spur one another on. So verses 24 to 25, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, there it is again, the day, the future. Well, this verse, it actually takes on a new relevance after the last year of coronavirus, doesn't it? Do not give up meeting together. Because, of course, we, well, we learnt, we, we survived without meeting, but we've learned how important it is to meet together in person. If you know anybody who is saying, oh, I'm not quite going back to church yet, I'm not quite going back to church yet, I know people are nervous about things, but just give them a nudge. Go on, get back. Um, maybe someone in another church who you know, get back, come on, we've got to get back to it. So, we've learned that this last year. 
But meet, so meeting has been an issue for us this year. Meeting was certainly an issue for the first readers of this letter because meeting together with the, new, with the Christians put them outside the legal protection that they had enjoyed when they were part of the Jewish faith and the Jewish community. And that's uh, uh, even more reason why they needed each other. This pressure. They needed each other to say to one another, keep going. The future does belong to Jesus. You're not just imagining it. It does. And that's what spur, that's a lovely phrase there. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Spur one another on. Adam, actually, we were just praying for Adam a minute ago, weren't we? He, he often prays this before the service. Um, the, asking that the church family together will spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Because confidence grows confidence. Confidence grows confidence. Confidence grows when confidence is shared. So, we need to get to church. We need to get to the meetings for the sake of others. And, and we need to ask our Father, do you notice he says, consider how you may spur one another. We need to think about it. How can I help her? How can I help him to grow, to gain confidence? What words have they need to be spoken to them to not tomorrow or this, later on today as I go into the fellowship? And of course, our own faith needs to be regularly in church and in the meeting as well. Drifting away from meetings is a slippery slope towards drifting away from Jesus. People, people go, no, it's not. My faith's just as strong. Yeah, I, okay. But you don't need to be around church that long to realize that actually drifting away from the meetings is very often um, uh, either co the cause of or the accompanying symptom of a drift away from Christ. Now, there are so many factors that, uh, and, and, and we need to do this more and more, of course, because the day of Christ is coming. We need to keep focused, keep going as that day comes. And there are lots of factors that we face that keep people away. Just compare nowadays to, even when I was a child, um, let alone a generation before that, when Sunday was much clearer. What else was there to do? Now, you can do anything on Sundays, and of course at shifts and weekends away, reluctant spouses or children, countless Sunday activities, and we've got to be understanding the, the complexities of, of one another's lives. But we've also got to stand against the cultural lie which says to us, your time is your own. It's a blank sheet for your own self-expression and fulfillment. That is a lie. Our time is God's gift in Jesus Christ to us. That's what our time is. Our time is his gift. And he summons us to be together regularly. Because we need to strengthen one another in our hold on our Christian confidence. So that's our main theme, our Christian confidence. It's God's gift in Jesus Christ and we need to strengthen our hold upon it. Okay, third. We must never throw it away. Our Christian confidence, we must never throw it away. The stakes are actually infinitely high. Because, here's the question, if we throw away this confidence, then what on earth do we have left to hope for? Hebrews contains some of the New Testament's most drastic warnings, of which verses 26 to 31 is perhaps the prime example. There's another one in, verse, in chapter 6 that gets close, but I think this is probably the strongest. Verse 26, let's just skim these verses just so we can feel the weight of them. 
If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, then no sacrifice for sin is left. Verse 29, how severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Verse 31, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you say to me, hang on a sec, I thought we were talking about confidence. This sounds terrifying. And of course it is. It it is. And it should certainly sober us. Yes, there are people who will appear to have received the Christian confidence, but then who just wander away from it. It's tragic. And you think, gosh, the consequences. It it says to us, be sober. And it reminds us, there's a difference between, here are two words that's sort of used, between assurance and presumption. So assurance means saying, means saying, that's, that's like having Christian confidence. Assurance says, Jesus, you have done it all, and I trust in you. Presumption is slightly different. Presumption goes, well, I'm all right. Do you see the difference? Assurance is all based on Christ. Presumption, to, be presu- to presume, is all based on me. Well, I'm all right. And there's a, it's a subtle difference between true Christian confidence that says Christ is a great saviour and I trust in him and therefore I am safe. That's assurance. Presumption goes, well, I'm all right, aren't I? I mean, you know, I've got Jesus, so I'm, you know, I'll be all right, you know, I can do what I want. I've got my ticket to heaven, I'll be fine. No, that is very dangerous. Presumption. Very different attitude. The first one is assurance of faith. The second is the presumption of well, of actually, ultimately, unbelief. And so we need to, to beware. And the, 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 the writers, of the, the, the readers of this first letter, they were in danger of slipping away from their faith in Christ and from ba- abandoning him and going back to something else. Now, the, I just want to say on these verses to assure you that if you're thinking, oh, no, does this describe me? <gasps> I'm worried. Then, almost, then by definition, it doesn't describe you. It can't describe you because the person here is not the person who's struggling and battling with sin in their lives. We're all doing that constantly. No, this is someone who knows the truth, has experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, but has turned their back on it all deliberately. So it stands to reason that if someone rejects the only sacrifice for sin, that is Jesus' sacrifice, the only sacrifice that actually works, then their sins will remain. It's inevitable. And for them, the day of Christ will spell destruction, not salvation. So it's vital to keep our confidence in Christ strong. And that'll never, that'll simply never happen. It'll never happen because we'll keep trusting in our confidence that we have in Christ. And we must keep that confidence. In fact, no matter what happens before that day, when Christ comes. You know, there may be some choppy waters. The first readers of this letter, they knew that. They'd suffered for their faith. They'd lost reputation. They'd lost possessions. But, uh, uh, verse 34, he said, you sympathized then with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. They were full of confidence. Confidence. 
back, back then, they had banked their future life with God. They banked on it, so they didn't mind when life was hard. They had persevered in the past. And they needed to keep on persevering with their confidence, not drifting away, but facing Jesus full of confidence in him, in the glorious future life which he will give to all those who trust in him. They need to persevere, just like Jesus did. And that's where the chapter ends, chapter 10 ends, with a statement from the prophet Habakkuk about Jesus not shrinking back from his confidence in God's purpose, not shrinking back. We must be like him. Verse 39, I love verse 39. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. No, don't be stupid. We are those who believe and are saved, maintaining our Christian confidence. So our Christian confidence, as we draw this to a a, a close, we've made three important statements about it. In summary, it is God's gift through Jesus Christ. We need to strengthen our hold on it actively. We must never throw it away. Well, I began by talking about sports people who are known as confidence players, the ones whose game collapses when they're short of confidence, but who flourish when the confidence is high. Well, the Christian life flourishes, likewise, when we are buoyed up with confidence in Christ. Confidence of all that God has done in the past, confidence about all that he will do in the future. We are confidence players in the stadium of Christian living and of Christian service. And he has not left these truths, of course, about Jesus and the access that we have, the the confidence that we have through Christ, that we want the confidence we must act on and we must hold on to. He has not left those in history when Jesus accomplished them. Neither are they just a matter of words and understanding, mentally understanding words on the page. No, because God's Spirit is present. He's willing, he's able to write these words on our hearts and our consciences uh, right now. And that's what I'm going to pray for as we close. We pray, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus and by virtue of his blood which has gained us access and has given us this confidence, that we would know that confidence now by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if there are any here who are tempted to throw that confidence away at the moment for whatever reason, that these sobering words from Hebrews would would keep them well away from that, but rather reignite confidence in him who loves them and us. Gracious Father, do all this, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may flourish with Christian confidence today and every day. All in the name of Jesus. Amen.